super fun. Um, I just wanted to acknowledge Jerry Hardwick, who's here up front. How many of you were able to come to the event last night? Yeah, a bunch of you, that's right. Um, very interesting ideas, and if you'd like to find out some more information, be around a little bit, I'm sure you'll come talk to you. But he has some ideas about looking back, there's a capacity now with using computers to actually see the, what the sky looked like at any date in history, backwards or forwards, which is pretty impressive that you can actually do that. And uh, it's got some really good ideas. Several people here learned some great things last night. Thanks for coming and sharing with our congregation. Yes, thank you. Say what? Say what? Uh, I'm sure there's some inclusion of the shift in the rotation, Murph. I'll let you work out that algorithm later um, with smarter people than me. So there you go. It's fun being a theologian. Yeah, right. <laughs> you don't have to answer those questions. <laughs> Before we jump into the text, I want to take just a moment and I want to pray for our country. I, I just continue week after week to be, um, I'm not quite even sure what the word is. Amazed, appalled. Um, the divisions that are there seem to be floating more and more to the surface. And um, it just shows you what happens when you don't have a common basis for agreeing on things like morality, uh, right and wrong, truth. Um, it's just astounding to me uh, what's happening. And it's not just the tweets of our president, it's the tweets of all of our government offices. officers. There was a senator this week in Missouri who tweeted only for one minute that they wanted the president, hope the president was assassinated. Only for one minute. Do they think they're not going to catch that? I mean, there's programs out there that catch all that stuff, and it went viral within just a couple of minutes. Everybody in the world knows about it. And once the words come out, boy, you can't take them back, can you? And uh, there's just a lot of hatred and hostility, and you hear all those words being thrown around, bigotry, and that, that just goes so against us as Christians, doesn't it? Of what it means to be unified, to be peacemakers, to put each other first. Um, there is no room for hatred and bigotry. There just isn't any. So let's stop and pray together. Father, we lift up our country. We, uh, we enjoy our country. We are grateful, Lord, that uh, the freedoms that you have given us. Father, even to the event, to the... Um, level of you allow us to accumulate wealth and then we can turn around and bless people with it. How much fun that is. And Father, we stand here today uh, rejoicing that we can worship you freely and raise our, our voices and our hands to you and not worry about things. And we can talk about your word and not to be too concerned about that as well. And, and uh, yet, Lord, all around us, we see this uh, division that's been deeply embedded, embedded, I think, for a long time floating to the surface. Uh, Father, I, uh, we ask you, uh, as our God, to intervene, Lord, um, from our president all the way through the Congress and all our branches of government down to our mayors and our governors and all the elected officials that are there for the purpose of leading us as a people. Father, give them wisdom. Give them peace. Those that don't know you, I pray that you would introduce yourself to them and um, that you would just work your spirit because you're so good at this. Work your spirit in uh, in their hearts to give them wisdom to know what to do. I don't know what to do. It's far bigger than me, but it's not bigger than you because you are our God. So we just pray and ask that you would listen to us and um, calm our country down a little bit. 
Thank you, Lord, for being a God who places leadership and authority. Thank you for being a God who this is not mind-boggling to you. You're not surprised by it, and you know what to do about it. So we turn to you in faith because you are our God. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're in a series, To the Victor Go the Spoils, and we're talking about victory. And we're using Revelation as our kind of our launching pad on this whole concept of victory because Revelation is the book that, that um, develops the concept of victory far more than any other book. Of the 24 uses of the verb in the New Testament, 17 of them occur in this book in Revelation. Every one of the seven letters addressed to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 concludes with the verb to the one who is victorious, or some of your translations say to the one who conquers. And so that's our journey right there as Christians, to be victorious. We're spending time during this series talking about what is the fruit of victory. And then when we're done with this, um, the next series we're going to talk about what does it mean to live a life of victory? How do, you, how do we do that? And what's involved in that? And so we've gone through the letters, several of them. And so let's just kind of remind ourselves, do a quick journey through these seven letters where we've come so far. So in chapter 2 of Revelation, to the church in Ephesus, we talked about there the concept of abandonment. Their concern was, his concern for this church was that they had been abandoned their first love, uh, their love for the Lord and their love for one another. And we have said that our, our elders and staff, we are very committed to staying focused and staying the course. With your help, by the way, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will never abandon our first love. But yet, here's a church that has. Every one of these letters, the language that's used, hopefully you're getting this picture now, the language that's used is specifically related to the culture that the church exists in. So he's using things right out of their world to help them grasp these concepts. And therefore, this applies to us. We don't have these, these uh, cultural uh, and these temples and things like that that they have, but the principles float to the surface and they relate to us. As we go through these letters, you're probably getting to get the picture that this is describing the church in our own country, isn't it? Um, not every church is guilty of all of this, but boy, these, these apply to what we're going through today. They had abandoned their first love. And he said, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. You may remember we surveyed uh, Proverbs and a few other Old Testament passages and, and said, the tree of life is metaphorical to describe what we find in true, healthy community and relationship. So it's absolutely critical that we continue as a church to, to build a, a church that is a safe place. Yes, it is redemptive. When you come here, you will learn about the Lord. That is our goal. You will learn about the gospel and the way the Lord interacts with his world and creation. You'll also learn about sin, which, by the way, describes all of you. Okay? And, uh, and you'll learn about what redemption looks like. I'm just so proud of all of you, the, the many of you that have come forward. We've said over and over again, if you're stuck in sin, don't be ashamed. Come ask for help. You don't have to live with it. You can deal with it. And to build uh, this type of community takes a long time, doesn't it? And we're working on it very seriously to make this church a church that we all enjoy coming to. And we're not ashamed to say, I'm stuck. Will you help me? 
That's what redemption is all about. Then the second church was Smyrna. And here we talked about the concept of distraction. They were struggling with uh, poverty in this church, and so they're easily distracted. You may remember I pulled out my phone and said, this is one of the things, if I'm not careful, that distracts me. Yes, I read the headlines three times a day, seven days a week. I've been doing it for a year. I don't want to miss what's happening right now around the globe. Uh, Am I afraid? No, I'm not. You know why? I have faith in the one true God. I don't have to worry about the problems. He does. But I want to know what's going on. And so I, I know about what's happening in some of these countries where the terrorist attacks are occurring and the struggles that the other nations are having and the struggles we're having. I mean, my goodness, it seems to be a worldwide uh, pandemic of issues right now. And this is important because then we can talk about them and we can pray together. And he says, to the one who is victorious, we will not be hurt by the second death. In Revelation at the end, the second death is that eternal separation from God. We don't have to worry about the second death. We don't have to worry about it. Is that good news to you? You can rest. One of my jobs is to just remind the staff and elders that we have nothing to be afraid of. We don't. We serve God Almighty. He's the one that appoints all the leadership. He made the earth. He knows every human on it. We don't have to worry. We can relax in His grace. The third church was Pergamum. Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum were all the three big cities in Asia Minor on the western coast. Um, They're all seaports. They're all home to the imperial court. All three of them uh, had the uh, temples to the emperors that they worshipped as well as other temples for various gods and goddesses. And so they're all, these are the big ones. He says here, uh, we talked about here, cultural assimilation. This was their problem. They're assimilating into culture out there and they're becoming like culture rather than moving out into culture and transforming culture. So rather than transforming what's out there with our friends and our neighbors, they're becoming like that. And we have committed as a church not to do that. Will culture impact us? Absolutely. Will they challenge us? Yes, they will. Will they ask us questions? I sure hope so. Will they disagree with us? You bet. I hope they do. Because that becomes the beginning, the foundation of a healthy discussion is when we can have that conversation. Will they tell us how to do church? No. Will they tell us what to believe? No. We'll rely on social sciences to get a glimpse of what's happening. So I can tell you what the statistics are in the church. Everything from sexual abuse to divorce to all of that. I can tell you those statistics. So we measure that. But will they tell us and direct us? No, they won't. We get that from the Word of God. That's our commitment. And to the church of Pergamum, who is experiencing this culture of assimilation, to those who are victorious, he gives them two things. One is the hidden manna. That's that nourishment that comes from Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life, he says. And this is what communion reminds us of, is that nourishment that comes from staying closely connected to Jesus and therefore each other. That's how that nourishment comes about. To the one who's victorious, he will also give that person a white stone. In Pergamum, they use stones uh, engraved with your name to invite you to the pagan religious festivals. And so he's using something they understood. 
we will get our own individual white stones with a name on it that only we know. That's how special each of us are to the Lord. The invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb, the bride of Christ, the feast that's coming. We get that. We get our own invitations. Jim, you're invited to come. Isn't that great? I just think that's great. Lauren, you're invited. Ryan, you're invited to come. That's what happens. Then the church in Thyatira. Here we talked about cultural compromise. If cultural assimilation is moving out into culture and becoming like them, cultural compromise is bringing culture back into our church where we compromise internally. Will we do that? No, we won't. Like I've said, we will allow culture to play a very vital role in shaping our thinking by raising questions, disagreeing with us. What the culture thinks important, we need to pay attention to. We need to pay attention to it because this is all of our friends and our neighbors. This isn't us versus them. We live with them. And so we need to know what is important to them so that we can interact in a righteous way with truth and grace and say, here's what God has created us for. And so this is going to harm us and we don't want to do that. In uh, Iron Hour last week, Mark asked the question, what's the purpose of sin? Why did God identify sin? Is that a great question? Most of you have probably never been asked that question. What's the purpose of sin? If God had never told us that adultery was sinful, never spoke about it, how many of us would engage in it? Probably most. Okay? Would it still be destructive? Yes, it would, wouldn't it? If God had not told us that alcoholism was destructive, how would we find out the hard way, wouldn't we? Now you see why the Jewish people looked at the law of Moses and said, this is grace. Because God took the time to say, I know how you're made because I created you. And if you do this, this will hurt you. It's like saying to your two-year-old, no, you can't go play in the street. You can't run out there. That will hurt you. Is that gracious for a two-year-old to know that? It is, isn't it? That's what, I, that's what sin is all about. It's the labeling of destructive behaviors that hurt us. It's a way to think about sin. Cultural compromise. To the one who is victorious... Uh, he says, I will give authority over the nations and I will give that one the morning star. We get to reign with Christ. We are partners with him. That is true today. We are partners with him in bringing the kingdom out to this broken world right here. There's no, there's no sign with flashing lights. God is glorious. There's no airplane with a banner behind it. God is glorious. No, no, no. To God be the glory in the church, Ephesians 3. We get to partner with Christ. It's amazing that he uses us, but he does. We get the right to rule and to share with others. That is an honor and a privilege to share with people about this kingdom that we know about, that they don't know about. So then today we're talking about the church in Sardis, Revelation chapter 3. Have you ever been, this is an honesty check, see how many of you feel confident to Raise your hands. I'll raise my hand. You ever fall asleep at the wheel? You ever drive and you fall asleep? Am I the only one? Oh, no, there's three, four, five. Six. Oh, there's a few of you. 
that dreaded sound when you... I'm so thankful they now put that on highways. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? You're just so tired, you doze off, and next thing you know is you're... One of my friends, good friends in Germany, was driving home, professional basketball player when we were missionaries there. On his way home, fell asleep headlong into a truck and died. Uh, never met his uh, baby who was going to be born a couple months later. That's, that's terrible to fall asleep, isn't it? Today we're going to talk about a church that's sleeping. They've fallen asleep at the wheel. That's what this church is about, Sardis. To the angel, this is Revelation 3, of the church in Sardis, write these words. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Okay, pause. You know by now Revelation is filled with imagery. The seven stars, back in Revelation 1, he says those are the angels to the churches. So the seven churches have seven angels. So apparently there's an angel assigned to the church who's paying attention. And then in Revelation 5, 6, the seven stars represents the eyes of Jesus that go out into the churches. And so... You have these angels and you have the eyes of Jesus watching what happens. Jesus is present with us. Do you realize that? Do you realize that? He's paying close attention to us. In fact, the moment you turn to Christ and you receive the Holy Spirit, you do realize that God is present with you in your sin. Whatever your sin happens to be, however vile it is, okay, Jesus is right there. You have the Spirit right there with you as you engage in that sin. You can run, but you can't hide. Okay? And that's what we have here. This is the all-powerful Lord Jesus whose very eyes are watching what's happening and how we do church. We take it seriously. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Now, Sardis is an interesting city. Because I told you that these letters all use the cultural images in their city to help them understand it. Sardis is on the side of a very steep hill, very steep to get up to the walled city. It was an impregnable city. For a long, long time, nobody could breach the walls. They couldn't get up there. The walls are too steep. So we have stories where they would look over the walls at the army down below and say, have fun, we're going to bed, we're going to sleep. And that worked well for them. They never worried about it until the 6th century when the king of Persia got his engineers together and figured out how to do it. In the middle of the night, they made it possible to climb the steep wall. And when Sardis woke up in the morning, they were now a Persian city. They fell asleep. If they had been alive, they would look down and said, look at these guys climbing the wall. How are they doing that? Wake up the army quick. But they're asleep. They fell asleep. So he says, wake up. Now what he's doing here is he's applying this to the church because they grasped that. They knew what it was like to have their city overtaken by surprise because they fell asleep. And so he's saying, this is what you're doing now as a church. You've fallen asleep. Folks, we are always one step away from falling asleep, aren't we? We're always one step. And it's so subtle how it works. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. 
Why should we do all things without grumbling and complaining? Why? Because we believe in the sovereign Lord, don't we? Nothing happens to you by chance. Do you realize in the Old Testament when a priest, while the priest was on duty in the temple, when they lost a mother or father, when they lost a family member through death, they were not allowed to tear the robe in grief while they were on duty. You know what the punishment was for doing that? Death. You know why? Because it was a public statement in front of the people that I don't really believe in the sovereignty of God. So when you grumble and complain, you're telling the world that you don't really believe God is sovereign. You don't believe your own theology. When we allow our marriages to fail at such an alarming rate, we're telling the world we don't really believe our own theology about developing healthy marriages. That's what we're saying to them. That's how close we are to falling asleep. We justify sin in our own lives, don't we? Don't do that. Stay awake. Stay awake. Be bothered when you're sin. Now, don't, don't become comfortable with it. Come forward and let us know. We know how to bring about redemption. You don't need to be ashamed. But at the same time, don't stay where you are. Then he goes on, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. That's what we're talking about. When we say we believe God is sovereign, then we grumble and complain when something happens that we don't like, that's an unfinished part of our life. Your deeds are unfinished. Finish the course. Live out your faith in real ways. The way you live your life is actually very, very important. Live it out. You struggle with anger? Start to deal with it. You can't deal with it? Come get some professional help. You struggle with pornography, adultery, whatever it is, stop. You can't stop? Come get help. Come get help because your life is important. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. This imagery is used all throughout the scriptures. In fact, we're going to look at another passage in a minute by Paul. I will come like a thief in the night. No one ever knows when a thief is coming, do they? Don't ever know. He will surprise you and show up when you least expect it. You yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Okay, pause. Here's another one of those cultural references. You see, Sardis was a city of garment makers. That was their particular trade. They knew. They made all kinds of garments and material. And it would be shameful to be caught with dirty, soiled clothes or clothes that were worn out in this community. You wouldn't do that. In fact, if you were wearing soiled clothes or clothes that was worn out, you weren't welcome into the uh, imperial pagan celebrations to worship the gods. That was, fashion was really important to them. Now, he's not talking here about having the right clothes. He's talking about having the right faith and how you're living it out. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. They're worthy. This is a statement about your spiritual life. See how he's using their cultural images to communicate how important it is to live out our faith in very real and legitimate ways? The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. That's the first thing. We'll be dressed in white. Second thing, 
I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and His angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So two things to the churches victorious. Um, we get dressed in white, and I'll never blot out the name from the book of life. I'm going to read to you a section out of uh, N.T. Wright's small book on Revelation about this whole concept. Their names will stay where they are in the book of life. This too is mentioned on various occasions later on in Revelation about seven times. The idea goes back with, within ancient Israelite thought to God's book referred to in Exodus thirty-two, thirty-two. You see in Exodus 32, they had just committed the sin of the golden calf. You remember that story? Moses comes back down from the mountain and God says, I'm going to blot them all out of the book. What does Moses do? He pleads with God and he says, don't do that. Blot me out of the book because I'm their leader. But don't do that to them. They are your people. So this is not an encouraging reference since there almost all the Israelites had deserved to be blotted out of that book. That's Exodus 32. And it was only God's fresh act of mercy that rescued the situation. There we have a picture in Exodus 32 with the golden calf of God's deep love for us. Moses intervened and said, don't do that. Take me. Take me. Paul says the same thing in Romans 10. I would gladly give up my salvation for the sake of my Jewish uh, relatives and friends if that were possible. That's sacrifice, isn't it? Blot me out of the book, not my people. These are your people. So John is not advancing a theory. This is a little bit technical, so walk with me through this. John is not advancing a theory about predestination, which in any case always has its corollary that those who are to be saved turn out to be those who persevere. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks because this language seems conditional and it's a little fearful. What if you're not victorious? But it doesn't always mean the same thing. In English, it's the same. If I look at you and I say, uh, oh, you have a wedding ring, you must be married. The wedding ring is the evidence of this true. This is possible here. The fact that you're victorious shows that you're faithful, that you're regenerated. We're going to come back and look at this and explore this idea in a couple of weeks. And N.T. Wright's raising it here. He is holding out a standard of early Christian warning. Going back to John the Baptist, Paul, and Jesus himself, it's a warning against presuming that belonging to the community of the people of God, irrespective of behavior within it, is all that is required. You know, when I marry young people, one of the things I say and during, as part of the wedding ceremony is that <clears throat> marrying the right person is not the goal. That's a part of it. But the far more important goal is being the right person rather than marrying the right person. And that's true in our church. Finding the right church is not the real issue. Being the right person in that church is the issue, and that's what he's arguing for there. So falling asleep, falling asleep at the wheel, how does that happen? How does that happen? This is a book by John Stott. By the way, I appreciate all of your feedback when I refer, when I refer to books. I know several of you are reading them. Uh, as an academic, that makes my day. <laughs> In the classroom, the students don't have a choice. You do. 
And I just appreciate those of you that are reading this. It's a book by John Stott. John Stott uh, was 89 years old when he wrote it. It's the last book he wrote. A very, very good theologian and thinker. One of the best the world's ever seen. And um, he is from Great Britain. And so he decided just before he dies to write one more book. The very last page says, And now as I lay my pen down for the last time, literally because I don't know how to use a computer, (laughs) he said, I I have uh, some final thoughts. He concludes with, uh, I'll see you soon. He was 89. He died right after that. He entitled it, The Radical Disciple, Some Neglected Aspects of Our Calling. The Radical Disciple. Things that the church overlooks where we are falling asleep. I'm just going to read to you one section. chapter called Nonconformity. This is the very first chapter. The first characteristic of the radical disciple that I bring before you I will call nonconformity. Let me explain why. The church has a double responsibility in relation to the world around us. On the one hand, we are to live, serve, and witness in the world. On the other hand, we are to avoid becoming contaminated by the world. So we're to, we are to live in the world or not to be contaminated by it. So we are neither to seek to preserve our holiness by escaping from the world, nor to sacrifice our holiness by conforming to the world. Those are the two risks that are always facing us, is Escaping from the world or conforming to the world. Escapism and conformism are are thus forbidden to us. This is one of the major themes of the entire Bible, namely that God is calling out a people for himself and is summoning us to be different from everybody else. Be holy, he says. That's what the idea of holiness is, is being different. Not better than, different than the people around us. Because I am holy, he's quoting Leviticus 11 and 1 Peter 1. This foundational theme recurs in all four of the main sections of Scripture. The law, the prophets, the teachings of Jesus, and the teaching of the apostles. First, the law. God said to his people through Moses, You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices, either Egypt or Canaan. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees, I am Yahweh, your God, Leviticus 18. Similarly, God's criticism of his people through the prophet Ezekiel is that, quote, you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws, but you have conformed to the standards of the nations around you, Ezekiel 11, the very thing God told them not to do. In the same New Testament, uh, it is the same in the New Testament. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke of the hypocrites and the pagans and added in Matthew 6, do not be like them. Finally, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, 2. Here then is God's call to radical discipleship, to a radical non-conformity to the surrounding culture. It is a call to develop a Christian counterculture, a call to engagement without compromise. Without compromise. That's our responsibility, and we were committed to that. We are committed to that as a church. I'm going to read to you a very famous verse to close with, 1 Thessalonians 5. You're all familiar with 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. When I read it to you, you'll recognize it. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. 
so, so that you do not grieve like the rest of humanity who have no hope. And he talks about those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died before us. That's very familiar to you. Then in chapter 5, he starts off, uh, and he uses the metaphor for sleep. In fact, you're all familiar with this verse, verse 10. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Now, it's easy to think of that in terms of whether we are alive or dead, but listen to the context, and I'm going to maybe change your thinking. You see, when he gets to the concept of sleeping, he changes Greek words here because he wants to communicate something a little different. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. We just read that, didn't we? That's He's talking to you. Now he shifts to the people out here. While they are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, now he's talking about us again, Um, You are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So darkness and light, night and day, become metaphors here for where we live and how we live our lives. Paul says in Romans, you're either in Christ or you're in Adam. If you've turned to Jesus, you're in Christ. And he's using the metaphors of darkness and light, day and night, to help us illustrate that. Then he says in verse 6, very next verse, So then, let us not sleep like the others. If this is a metaphor for death, this is an absurd command. So then, let us not die. That doesn't make sense. Let us not fall asleep. Same thing in Revelation. Be awake. Let us not fall asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Let's not be spiritually captured and pulled into darkness through compromise, assimilation, distraction, all the things we've been reading about. Don't do that. Be be alert and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are right with Christ or living in sin... Whichever of those are true, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 5. That should give you encouragement. That's how much the Lord loves you. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. Help us as a church to stay alert and sober. We listen to you. You're the ones that bring culture to us. We'll never let culture dictate how we believe, how we form our beliefs, but we'll let them influence us because they'll ask questions that we will engage and answer. That's what a church in the 21st century needs to be, is an agile church because the culture is shifting around us faster than any of us can keep up. And so we have the Word of God, we have great elders, we've got staff, and we've got you to help us always listen to the culture but not compromise with culture 
to engage in ways that are honest, true, genuine, redemptive, without compromise. That's our commitment as a church. Father, thank you for uh, thank you once again for these wonderful these wonderful books, these letters to these churches. They they help us. They help us to really grasp what you're talking about, what it means not to uh, not to compromise with culture, but to live a life that ensures our victory. And we will experience that victory because of that. Father, help us as a church not to compromise, not to forsake our first love, to abandon it, not to uh, be distracted, not to assimilate into culture, but help us to be a church that is a light on the hill, city on the hill. Help us to be a church that, that with love and grace brings truth to those who are trying to sort it out and to love them very well. Thank you. In your son's name we pray, amen.